The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. continue to be blessed uh, by many men coming from around our presbytery to bring God's word to us. And uh, tonight uh, we're welcoming again Eric Swanson. He was here uh, at the beginning of June. Uh, so if you think he looks familiar and you were here the first weekend of June, that may be why. Uh, but Eric, uh, I count uh, as a, a friend. Uh, I've been blessed by him as uh, we partner and work in our presbytery. He comes from New Life Presbyterian Church uh, in, the, in York County, uh, and we're grateful that he's here to bring God's word to us tonight. Good evening, everyone. It's an honor to be here. I love the connection that comes through being Presbyterian, the blessing of knowing other pastors, and Chris has been a blessing in my life as well as many of the pastors that are on staff here. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, and your pew Bibles are the ones you brought with you, just want to remind you, word of context of what we're looking at. Paul is looking in Ephesians at how what God has done is God has brought about, is bringing about the union of all things under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As he explains that earlier in Ephesians 2, he reminds us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, that God has made us alive. And in our passage, starts with a therefore, so he is going to be bringing the truth on a much, bringing the truth to bear on a much more personal level of what this beautiful gospel that we are saved by grace through faith, that we are brought back from spiritual death to life through Christ's death and resurrection. He's making it very personal, very plain, very practical. Let's pay attention to God's word, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you at that time, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." 
So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please join me as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, our God, we do thank you for your word, and we pray even now that you would speak to us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have to tell you that there's a lot of fighting going on in this world. In case you didn't pick up the newspaper or open up a app on your phone or listen to the news on the radio or watch it on TV. This world is full of hostility and strife and fighting. It's all over the place. Nation against nation, within nations, subgroup against subgroup, within communities, different communities that have hostility against each other, sadly within families. There's hostility everywhere. If you've been in the church for longer than about three weeks, maybe you've been in the church for three years, maybe three decades, you've probably seen it in the church where people don't get along. Some of you in this room probably have scars from fighting that's happened in churches. There's hostility everywhere. It's easy to look at others and to think, oh, if other people could just get their act together. But the reality is that every single one of us has the ability within us to disrupt paradise. The previous church I was at in North Jersey, I was served for about eight years at a PCA church. During one of those years, I was interim pastor as the church was looking for a new senior pastor. Uh, we had a lot of exciting things going on. And I, behind the scenes, managed to cause some conflict with one of the elders. It was my fault. It was over a question of how a committee functioned. It was simply a matter of process, and I had a different view, and the session I didn't listen well to the session. It was my fault. By the grace of God, it was only between the two of us. By the grace of God, we were able to work through it. I will tell you at the end of the sermon, one of the things that God used to really help me work through it. But there, we all can get involved in hostility and conflict. Paul here in Ephesians has been celebrating the grace of God in Christ. And he's beginning to make it very personal and very practical. We see in verse 11 that he's talking to the Gentiles here and he's contrasting them by some group in the church that's called the circumcision. So there are these two factions in this church. Now we read these terms and we sometimes are confused that these are code names for the, the Jews and the Gentiles, those that are the true children of Abraham and all those outside of knowing God. But to those in that day, there would have been no confusion, no misunderstanding. You see, even back in this day when Paul was writing this letter, this letter was written, most likely written before 70 AD, and the temple itself had a court for the Gentiles, but then there was a place uh, where only Jewish people could go. And because of the long-standing historical tension between the Jews and all those that oppressed them, and because the Jews were so willing to die for their faith, the Roman government had given them the ability to self-police inside the Temple Mount. And they put up a sign on the, this five-foot-thick wall that was to keep out everyone that wasn't Jewish. This sign basically said, trespassers will be executed. 
Josephus reports on it. And then two of copies of the sign were found. One copy was found in 1871, another in 1935. And this is what it said. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. There's hostility everywhere. No wonder this passage in three different places mentions the hostility What hope is there for the church? What hope is there for you and for me? In this passage, Paul tells us to remember. Verse 11 starts, remember, and he's reminding us of what is true. And I want us to see the three things that he calls us to find hope in. First of all, to remember who you were. This is verses 11 and 12. Remember who you were. Secondly, remember what Christ has done. Verses 13 through 18. And then third, remember who you are. And that's verses 19 through 22. So let's look together this evening at what we're called to remember. First, remember who you were. Paul wants to remind the church, these, the, this Gentile group, that they once did not know God. He heaps on these terms to remind us of that. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now there's a lot that could be said about each one of those phrases, but I want us to notice the last one really is summarizing all of them. Without God in the world. Paul's going to go on, verse 13, to show that the only hope is in what Christ has done. We'll get there in a second, but I want to pause and help us to consider how, to the human ear, how offensive what Paul is saying actually is. He turns to these Gentiles, these people that were once Gentiles, but now put their hope and faith in Christ, and he says, you're without God in the world. Now, if you know anything about Greco-Roman history, you know that they had lots of gods. They had a whole pantheon. The Romans were famous for every time they conquered a new people, they'd adopt those gods into their pantheon. They'd say, oh, well, this person relates to this god we already had. It's all big, one happy, fighting family of gods up on Mount Olympus. They, they just lumped all the gods together. They thought of themselves as very religious. They thought of these new Christians as being atheists because these Christians rejected the gods that everyone else worshipped. And Paul says they're without God in the world. You see, the Bible confronts us with a diagnosis of the human condition. Paul said, and what we see earlier, that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. The Bible confronts us with our need for what God has done. It confronts us with the reality that unless God acts, we are without hope and without God. And what was offensive back in that day is offensive today as well. In a world where there are billions of people that hold to other religions and where it's easy for us to wrestle with saying, I know some of those people myself and they're nice people. And yet the scriptures remind us again and again that apart from the grace of God, apart from the action of Christ, all humanity is lost. Fortunately, this passage doesn't end here. Although it starts with the bad news, it quickly gets to the good news. But I want us to pause before we go on and consider 
how one of the implications of what Paul is doing here is he's calling the church to a posture of constant humility. I'm not reading this into the text. The verses just before, Paul celebrates, famously uh, quoted by many in the evangelical world, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Amen, we ought to celebrate that. But he goes on, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul, in chapter 4, when he begins to apply the beauty of the gospel that he's been laying out in chapters 1 through 3, Paul uh, opens his application with saying, I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And the very first thing in his list of what it means to walk worthy is this, with all humility and gentleness. As the church were called to a posture of humility, to constant humility, because our history is a history of coming to experience the riches of Christ's goodness to us. And we must acknowledge, like David does throughout the Psalms, as for me, I am poor and needy. We must acknowledge, as our Lord says in his first public teaching, the book of Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, there can be a constant temptation towards spiritual pride, towards thinking that we know, that we understand, that we have things figured out. We are, after all, Presbyterian. And yet Paul wants us to consciously work at remembering my only hope is in the grace of God. On my own, I am without hope and without God in the world. This is the first thing that Paul calls us to is to remember who we were. Secondly, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time here, we're called to remember what Christ has done. Remember what Christ has done. Verses 13 through 18 show us this, and they show so clearly the two interwoven themes that Christ has brought peace and Christ has brought unity. And these interwoven themes of peace and unity are doubly interwoven because Paul continually reminds us that that peace is first of all vertical with God, but that peace is also horizontal with one another. Paul reminds us again and again this passage that that unity is first of all vertical with God, but that unity is also vertical with one another, uh, horizontal with one another. So let's look at this. First of all, let's look at this piece together. Look in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. He is our peace. Verse 15, the last phrase says, so making peace. How did Christ make this peace for us? Paul tells us. And he tells us in these phrases that are so condensed and so packed together, it's like getting a package in the mail and once you open it, everything just flies out and you're like, how did they get everything in this box? We could spend such a long time on every single phrase here. I simply have time to summarize for us. Look in verse 14. He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he break down this wall? How did he bring about peace in the church? How did he do it? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
Paul unpacks this a little bit more in his parallel letter, Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. What becomes incredibly clear there as you compare these two side by side is when Paul says in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, he's not saying that God's law doesn't apply. Jesus himself, after all, in the Sermon on the Mount said, I had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But what Colossians makes clear is that Paul is referring to the legal demands of the law that must be satisfied. In other words, by abolishing law of commandments and ordinances, what he is referring to is the reality that everyone that has broken the law stands under the judgment of the law. He's referring not to saying that God's law is somehow set aside as if God's law is not beautiful. Paul insists, Romans 7, that God's law is beautiful and good and holy. What he is telling us here is that the wrath of God, the judgment of God on those who fail to follow the law of God, that that has been abolished. He's reminding us that Jesus has removed the wrath of God, which was the will of God. And how did this happen? Look in verse 13, by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, he broke down this wall in his flesh. Verse 15, he might create in himself one new man. Verse 16, he did this through the cross. That it was at the cross as Jesus tasted the wrath of God in our place for our sake that that is how he accomplished peace. You see, whenever someone is harmed, the human heart cries for justice. And here Jesus takes God's justice on himself so that he can promise mercy to all who call on his name. This is why Paul celebrates that Christ has made peace. This peace is fundamentally in our relationship with God. Verse 16 might reconcile us both to God. But it's also peace with one another. Verse 14, this dividing wall of hostility is broken down. Now consider that when Paul wrote this, that dividing wall actually, in all likelihood, still stood in Jerusalem. It was still there. Sign and everything. And yet Paul is telling the church this glorious news that there's no hostility between God's people that we can walk in reconciliation and peace with God and with each other. So that's the one thread of peace. The other thread we see here is the unity that God has brought about. We see this unity with God himself in verse 16 and verse 18. Look in verse 16, that we are reconciled to God in one body, this unity with God. Because whose body is this Paul is talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's saying that in our relationship to Jesus, we have unity with God. And Paul makes it crystal clear in verse 18, for through him, we both, Jew and Gentile that is, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That we have access, that we have unity with God. And this unity with God is a unity that we have with each other. This idea of the two, that is Jew and Gentile being made one, runs throughout this whole passage, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, verse 18. It's all over the place. Remember what Christ has done. Christ, by his sacrificial death on the cross, has accomplished a real and lasting peace in himself 
for all who believe in Christ. What this means is if you trust in Jesus, you are united with the Father. You are united with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And in proclaiming this, we're also reminded we're called to live it out. You see, Jesus has made peace, and then it reminds us, verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near, that this peace is for everyone who believes in the name of Christ. And so chapter one tells us that when we hear and believe that we have the hope of eternal life, Jesus tells us that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. And so remember what Christ has done. Christ has brought peace and unity to the church that the world cannot find anywhere else. The world cannot create this. Only Jesus can. Consider how we see this in miniature, even in the apostles. Those who, this text goes on to tell us are the foundation of the church. Think about the makeup of the apostles. On the one hand, there's Matthew the tax collector. What did he do? He was a sellout. He betrayed his own people and went to work for the enemy for the sake of lining his own pockets and in the process probably abused justice and oppressed his own people. The tax collectors were hated by their fellow Jews because they went and worked for the enemy. One of the other disciples, Simon the Zealot, who were the zealots? They were the ones that were willing to actually take up the sword, engage in guerrilla warfare, disappear into the mountains of Judea to escape the wrath of the Romans. They were the ones literally willing to pick up the sword and fight for literal Jewish independence. And here, because of Jesus, these two men sat at the Lord's table. These two men celebrated Passover together because of Christ. What a picture of what Jesus has done in the church. So what does this mean for us today? We have peace with God. The end of uh, Christianity today, every month, they always have a testimony that's a story of someone coming to faith in Christ. This last month was a beautiful story about a woman who grew up uh, uh, as a Mormon out west. And as she grew up, the Mormon religion is very different from Christianity. They believe that by your own good works, you achieve divinity, that there are multiple, multiple gods out there, and that you just have to be good enough. Can you imagine the crushing weight? If you're good enough, you get to become a god. It's no surprise that although when she was young, she loved doing the right thing. By the time she got to high school, she was tempted by those around her and went into a path of rebellion and was constantly overwhelmed by her worthlessness and shame. She shares how, through the challenge of another Christian, how she started studying the Bible and her whole worldview started to unravel. She recognized her sin, her need for a Savior, and she came to know Christ as her Lord and Savior. And she talks about how she was given the worthiness of another as her own worthiness. She discovered a peace with God that she had never known. And this is what God gives to every person who trusts in Christ, that we do not have to be worried about our performance before God. 
This is why Paul keeps stretching the language in the book of Ephesians every time he's talking about what God has done. So the previous section right before this, he talks about the immeasurable riches of Christ in chapter 2, verse 7. Immeasurable riches. Chapter 3, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. You can't get to the end of how great God's generosity and God's goodness is. We have peace with God, a free gift given to all who believe. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And we also have peace with others. We have peace and unity with those in the church. You know, in the world in which we live, peace is often defined by peace and agreement or peace and people having the same ideology. They have to think the same. This passage reminds us that hostility in the church has been killed. Where do you need this reminder? That you are at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. What about in the area of politics? I know that's one of those uh, topics that as soon as you're raised, people say, oh, the preacher's going from preaching to meddling. But what about politics? Often the church can get quickly divided when it starts talking about politics. A good uh, friend of mine in the, over in the uh, metro New York area wrote a book called Body Broken. Can Democrats and Republicans sit in the same pew? He's exploring how broken Christ church is over issues of politics, but his uh, title is intentionally double entendre, pointing the church back to the reality that it's only because of Christ's broken body that we can all gather in God's presence to worship our risen king. You see, when it comes to issues of Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, uh, whatever else people are, progressive or not, very often we get so attached to our ideologies that we're willing to break fellowship. But what is the most important relationship of all? You know, at the end of the day, at the end of the world, the structure of world government is that of kingship, not democracy. And even though I'm glad to live in America, even though I am thankful because I think that democracy in the world is one of the things that helps hold back the temptation towards tyranny, our hope is that there is a good king. And so as we long for that day, there, there is room for Christians to have civil disagreements. But the question is, is it civil? And what keeps it civil is if everyone in the discussion has their eyes on the reality that Jesus is our peace, that we find our identity not in our politics, we find our identity not in our culture, we find our identity in our Lord who loves us and who died to make us one. So although we have a small election in a couple weeks, we have a major election next year. And our culture is going to, you're going to see the division more and more. As you seek to express your own views and engage with others, remember that Christ calls you to peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There are other areas that we could get into as well. Another issue is that very often in the church, um, people think that their cultural differences are the, the best way to do things. Maybe the right way, maybe the only way. The example I shared earlier at the beginning of the sermon, there was a difference of how should committees work, and I had my idea, and I held on to it too tightly. I caused problems. 
There are many different ways to do things that aren't clearly a matter of right and wrong. They're matters of wisdom. And when someone has a different perspective on how things are done, do we show respect and honor? You see, the astounding thing about what God has done in Christ, the book of Ephesians celebrates that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all, that it takes the entire church together with one voice to begin to continue to comprehend how great and wide and high and deep God's love is. And God is one in three. And so for God's people to be both united, but there also to be a richness of diversity, that brings honor to God. And this is something that God can do that the rest of the culture and the rest of the world just simply can't do and can't understand. And so you have some that call for a form of pluralism where people cannot ever be united. You have others that call for assimilation, and in some ways, those that are afraid of that would look to Star Trek. If there's any Trekkies out there, you probably know the Borg. We are the Borg. Lower your shields, surrender your ships. We'll add your own biological and technological distinctives to our own. Your culture will adapt to serve us. Resistance is futile. Now, any Trekkies out there know that? All the rest of you are like, what is he talking about? You see, God calls us to a peace in the midst of diversity that brings him honor and glory. So if you find yourself in a situation where I know as a church you're working in ESL ministry, you may meet some people in that that are Christians and some that are not, but when you're in different cultures, there are often different perspectives on time, on resources, on other things, and there, there are often issues of more or less wisdom. Do we show love to those around us, being long-suffering, willing to listen, willing to hear? Here's another place that we're reminded to live at peace. I know as a church that you're in the process of looking for a new senior pastor. What do you look for in a senior pastor? I'm sure your search team here has guidelines that they've settled on that they're working through. I personally know nothing about the process here. But what you need to look for, this passage reminds you that you need to look for a pastor that is going to proclaim that Jesus alone is the peace of the church. But this passage also cautions you to hold your own personal preferences loosely. As the search team gets to the point where a senior pastor comes publicly, there may be some discussion, there may be some difference of opinion on some things. That's okay. As a church, talk through it, work through it. But as you're talking through it and working through it, remember the unity that you have in Christ. The unity that you have as God's people, that your identity as a church is rooted in Jesus and not in the next senior pastor you call. The next senior pastor you call is simply the shepherd that God is bringing for the next season of this church's life as the church seeks to follow the chief shepherd. So I would urge you to remember Paul's exhortation in uh, Ephesians 4 verse 3 to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace even in the midst of the search for a senior pastor. One last place of application before we go to our third point. Often in churches, there can be people that carry a hurt because of a slight, a comment someone made something someone said or did five years ago. And ever since then, you've held that person at an arm's length. Now, the scriptures do show us 
and tell us how to be reconciled? When it comes to hurts in the church, we're told one of two things, love confronts or love covers. In other words, if someone is hurt, you're called to go to them to talk with them about the issue or to cover over that issue with love. Love covers a multitude of sins. But if you're still holding on to that hurt, then that's something to release to God to acknowledge that love covers, or maybe it means you need to actually go talk to them about it. But Christ calls us to be at peace with one another. This is, and I don't know if Westminster does this, this is why many churches will have a time during their worship service where they call it something like the passing of the peace. It's a, it's a, a formal reminder in the structure of the service that we have peace with one another. Remember what Christ has done. And then last of all, remember who you are. Not who you were, but who you now are. Look with me in 19 and 20. Paul uses uh, two images in 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This idea of fellow citizens, back in Paul's day, citizenship was costly to purchase. But here, Paul is reminding them there are no second-class citizens in the church that we are all fellow citizens, that we all have a great unity in Christ, that before God, your level of theological education or not does not matter. Before God, um, your status in society does not matter. Before God, whether you're Jew or Gentile does not matter. But what matters is whether or not you trust in Christ and that every single person who trusts in Christ is a fellow citizen in God's kingdom. But it's more intimate than that. Verse uh, 19, you are members of the household of God, that you are part of God's family. So this first, verse 19, reminds us of our relationship with one another, the community we have with one another. We need to be reminded of this again and again and again because our culture so strongly pulls us towards rugged individualism, towards the idea that all we need is ourself and God, that we are, we are sufficient. We don't really need other people in our lives. We don't need to open up and share. We don't need to be involved with others. Now, you're here at a Sunday evening service, so this may sound like preaching to the choir. I don't mean to, for you to say, yes, I'm thinking of this other person that needs to hear what he's saying, but to remind all of us that God made us for community with each other. That is who we are. It's God's gift that we're called into community. It's a blessing to know each other. Because as Paul's going to go on and pray at the end of Ephesians 3, it's only as the whole church comes together that we can begin to grow in comprehending together how great God's love is. Because we see it in each other's lives as we learn to live together. So Paul reminds us of the community we have with one another, but he also reminds us of the community we have with God. And so starting in verse 20 through 22, there's this building metaphor. And the building is the idea of a temple being built up where God dwells. The cornerstone of this building is Christ himself. We've already reflected on his work on the cross, but what Christ is doing is he is establishing a temple where God dwells. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now again, consider that when Paul wrote this, the temple was probably still standing. It was not destroyed till 70 AD. 
Think of how shocking this would have been to Jewish ears in particular that Paul is saying the church isn't a place where you come to be. The church is who the people of God are. You are the ones called out. You are the ones that belong to God. You have God's spirit living in you. So these things I was reminding us earlier, these places where we're called to live at peace, Paul is reminding us here that every single believer has the Holy Spirit, that you are part, you're one brick in this building that God is making. You're part of what God is doing in uniting a people to himself. What a savior, what a God that we have. So what have we seen this evening as we've looked at this together? Yes, there's a lot of hostility in the world. I know I told you about some conflict that I had with an elder, conflict that was my fault, conflict but by the grace of God we were able to sit down and I was able to confess and he forgave and we were reconciled what convicted me in the middle of all of it was a thought I could not shake as this man had a different view and the session had said that his way was right and my way was not the thought I couldn't shake is he's not your enemy he's your brother And I don't think that was me. (laughs) He's not your enemy. He's your brother. As we look at those in the church, as we look at those in the church who are maybe different than us, who have different experiences, who come from different socioeconomic class, who have different ways of doing things, different ideas of what's best, do we think of them first and foremost as God would have us? You see, because we're called to remember who we were, that we were once without God, but we're called to remember what Christ has done, that Christ has brought about a peace and unity in his body through his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the grave, that what Christ has done is that Christ has united us to the Father and Christ has united us to one another so that we are God's household, that we are the temple that God is building, that God dwells among his people. This is the glorious reality of what God has done. And he gives us his spirit so that we can live in this reality with peace and hope and joy. Therefore, I would encourage you, brothers, to walk with all humility, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We praise you for Christ and for what he has done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.